0: Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather in your name because of you, because of your gift of love to us and your written word to reveal who you are. That we gather here today to hear it being taught. We pray for Brother John that you might just empower him as he takes your word and preaches it to us. That you might give him a clear mind, you might give him words to speak, and that we would be able to hear the truth being taught and that we will be able to accept it and allow you to speak to us and we'd be willing to apply it to our lives as your spirit directs us to. We thank you, Lord, for your love and for the revelation to us that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, welcome to everyone again this morning. I'm sorry I do not have a poem to open with this morning, would be nice. Um, It's also not about Easter either, that kind of snuck up on me. Um, I have a subject here, as I'm sure you've read the title, a subject that I've been thinking about for a while, um, pondering the correct way to possibly present it, um, what all it includes, and I would like uh, this to be kind of a, a larger picture. I would like to, um, at some point in the future, I don't make any promises exactly when, but kind of follow the the path of uh, I'm going to say God's chosen people, which starts today here in the Old Testament and then continues on into the New Testament church. So, um, without making too many promises, how when or what. Uh, this is kind of an opening to something I hope to expand on in the future. So, as you saw by the title, uh, the title presents a question, and the question is two choices, or possibly three, and we'll get to those in a minute. The title is taken from two passages that I think we're all familiar with, but I'm going to read them. The first is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. I've really enjoyed our study in Sunday school through the book of Matthew, and this is, some of this is probably inspired by that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus talking here, says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So there's a lot said here in this verse um, concerning salt, comes in the middle of Jesus' teaching that we we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, three chapters filled with probably some of his most practical teaching for us today, how to live our daily lives. And Jesus, as was his way, used a lot of real-life examples and comparisons to help his listeners understand what he is trying to teach them. So throughout history, salt has been a very important item. Pepper, not so much, but salt. Very important. Um, So important that at times it was used as wages or even a payment. Uh, That's where the term not worth his salt comes from. Um, Soldiers were occasionally paid in salt, and I guess if he wasn't worth his salt, he wasn't worth paying that week. Even in more recent times, my understanding is one of the main reasons the Erie Canal was dug back whenever it was, was to transport salt out of the Syracuse area into um, across the New York State. So a lot of work, a lot of effort put into uh, something as simple as just being able to distribute salt. And we we most commonly think of table salt uh, used to enhance flavoring. Salt also has many other uses, um, cleaning, disinfecting, uh, de-icing, and preserving food. So while salt was very well known to his audience... I believe Jesus has some, some things in mind here when he likened the Christians to salt. And that is something I'm going to come back to more in the future, the salt part of this. The second passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 18. Says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, and he quotes here I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, you will be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So the phrase I want to fo- uh, focus on here especially is in verse 17, where the Apostle Paul is, cro- is quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who is himself quoting the words of God, where he says to his people to separate themselves from the evil around them and to remain uncontaminated by avoiding contact with what was considered unclean. And this is, like I said, a direct quote from Isaiah here. So We have two passages here, the one um, telling us to be salt. Uh, We know salt is only useful when it's in contact with something. And another passage saying that we should be um, separate. So I ask the question to you guys, um, do these passages agree with each other or do they conflict with each other? I'd like an answer. Are they in agreement? Okay. Let me ask this. What do both salt and separation have in common? Now, you have to stretch a little bit to get this, but if we think of the, the usage of salt, uh, one of the primary maybe more historical usages of salt, and separation. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. You get extra points for that one. So preservation, they are both used as a means of preservation. Salt is used to preserve foods, meats, cheeses, fish, all that stuff. And that use has become much less common or necessary since we have the invention of refrigeration, freezing, cooling, that sort of thing. A much more common way to keep food from spoiling. But in the past, salt was very commonly used for preservation. Now, separation is also a means of preservation. And I'm thinking of uh, something that's vacuum-packed, something that's canned, um, removing the air, the moisture, the bacteria, other things that cause spoilage will preserve that food, or whatever it is, in its original state for a very long period of time. So the saying, a few rotten apples spoil the whole barrel, gives the idea that separation of the good from the bad will prevent the good from being spoiled by the bad. So thank you, Brian, that is what I was after. They are both used as a means of preservation. Another question, what is the major difference between using salt versus separation as a means of preservation. I'm using some practical examples here, so don't get too biblical with this right off the bat. I'm just asking if you're using salt versus separation, what's a major difference between the two? Salt has to be in contact with Okay. And then following through with that thought Thank you. With separation, the product does not change. The package remains the same the day that it was reopened as the day that it was sealed. The look, the texture, the flavor, everything is the same. Nothing has been altered. That's not quite true with everything, but for the most part. So separation preserves by preventing the product from experiencing any change. How is that different from salt? How does salt preserve a product? And I did a little research here because I'm not the expert. But from what I understand, salt both displaces the moisture in the food as well as creates an environment where bacteria would cause spoilage. Um, so it, it decreases that, or it makes a, an environment where, where the bacteria cannot live and so therefore is less likely to spoil the food, or at least it slows the process way down. The difference in this process is that with salt, the food itself actually becomes salty. Its flavor changes, its nutritional values change, its taste and its texture change, and in being preserved, it has also been changed. It has taken on some of the qualities of the salt. It's important to note that the salt has also largely disappeared into the product that it is preserving. And from what I also have read here, I understand there's a balance between not enough salt and too much when it's used to preserve meats or something, Um, too little, too little salt, and while the food may have a a very nice flavor, there's not enough salt to actually preserve the food, and it may begin to grow bacteria, even while still tasting quite good. I think there's a lesson we can learn here. Um, A little Christianity brings a nice flavor to a lot of things. Uh, The good values, the honesty, integrity, good work ethic... Any person, family, church, business will benefit from those. That little bit of salt there. But just a little on the surface is insufficient to prevent decay from happening within. Too much salt, on the other hand, and while the food may be preserved practically forever, it is so oversaturated with salt that it becomes nearly inedible. I think there might be a lesson there too, if we would be honest. So just to make it simple... Uh, separation will preserve almost indefinitely without much, if any change to the product, but to do so any outside contact must be avoided at all costs, and total isolation must be maintained. We know what happens to that that um, can of peaches that that vacuum packed um, packet of whatever you want to have in it gets a little hole in it. Um, what looks real good through the through the uh, plastic has no resistance to outside influence if it becomes exposed. So that can of peaches, if it loses that seal, will quickly um, become rotten. In real-life situations, those people who have lived in isolation as a means of preservation, and for whatever reason, one day they find themselves outside of that protection, too often quickly find themselves very vulnerable and without much means of protection or conviction against anything that comes along. Salt is different. The good side is, with the correct amount, it's able to preserve whatever is in contact while still enhancing the natural qualities of that product. The downside, as we said, a a delicate balance is required. Too little, ineffective, too much, it's overpowering. And that amount is not always the same depending where it's being used. So which method is better, uh, being salt or being separate? Which Which will best preserve our churches? Which does the Bible command? Um, Anybody brave enough to venture which is the better method at this point? And I'll save you from that. I believe the answer is not A or B, but the answer is C. Um, Both choices. Both choices can be correct. Um, There can be a time and a place for both choices. And I want to look a little bit this morning at separation. Separation and where the time and place is for that. The idea of separation begins in the Old Testament. In fact, it was God's primary means of preserving His people before the coming of Christ and the indwelling guidance of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. The Holy Spirit is mentioned some throughout the Old Testament. He was definitely there. But He came and went a little differently, and He was not a constant guiding force in the life of the average person. A number of words today um, that kind of begin with the same letter, the letter P, and that's just kind of a, a way of making them easy to remember. We talked about the first one, uh, preservation, which just simply means to keep something of value alive, intact, and free from damage or decay. It's very simple. Um, the next word is plan. God has a plan for his chosen people uh, from and maybe even before the time of creation, and that plan had quite a few number of steps those steps are still unfolding today which brings us to the word of progression god's plan is progressing it's in motion it's moving phases of it are being completed <clears throat> and excuse me <clears throat> and new phases are beginning sometimes with a large project like a building or i had to think of a road project they have phases of construction phases also starts with the letter p For those of you that travel to Pennsylvania occasionally, you might be keeping watch on that new bypass around Lewisburg down there. That has been a very long project. Um, I'm not sure when it started, but from what I understand, that big bridge you can kind of just so see is scheduled to open later this year. And I did some research on the internet because I was curious. And additional sections, bypasses opening over the next five or 10 years. So they have this projected timeline that they are working towards it isn't necessarily very apparent when you drive past. In fact, they must be working somewhere else because when you drive past, there's nothing happening. Um, it appears like they're doing nothing, and in my opinion, progress looks rather slow. But there's the majority of the work in a project like that is laying the groundwork, laying the foundation uh, for the completed project. And someday, the surface that we hope to actually drive on is just the final icing on the cake. So God also has a timeline. Um, He also works in areas that we don't necessarily see him working in. His timeline might seem quite slow to us. And he did not intend his timeline to be completed within one of man's lifetimes. God has worked his plan for his people through the Old Testament. A lot of the Old Testament was simply setting the foundation for the New Testament, the arrival of his son, who then began laying the groundwork for his return someday. I want to look briefly at the early parts of that plan, at some of the phases that happened, some of the foundations that were laid. We know the account of creation in Genesis. The first man and woman were created. We know they sinned. We know God introduced his future plan of salvation in the middle of chapter 3. He gave hints of it. But for the first 1,500 or so years, man largely rejected God. We come to the flood, except for eight people, God pushes the reset button on mankind, almost a total do-over. And side note, I know God promised has, never, has promised to never destroy and restart mankind again, as he did then. But I have to wonder, uh, how much worse were they actually before the flood, that he wiped them out, than they have gotten since then? Um, I don't know. So while Noah and his family were obviously spared by God, because of their righteousness and then used to restart mankind on the earth, we have to go to Abraham to see the next step of God's plan here. It's believed Abraham lived around 2000 B.C. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover about 2,000 years. Um, Almost a third of mankind's existence is covered in the first 11 chapters. So if one day to God is a 1,000 years, And by the time uh, Abraham came along, God's plan was still quite young, two days old in his mind. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12, and we want to look at God talking to Abraham here. Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here God makes a promise. Another word here, he makes a promise to Abraham. He promises to make a great nation from Abraham's descendants, and while they would call Abraham their father, they were really God's people. In Genesis uh, 17, A couple chapters later, 17, verses 6 through 8, God establishes his covenant with Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. I will also give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. It's a promise going both ways. If we were to read on, we would see God gave Moses the mark of circumcision to distinguish God's people from others around them. And so the preservation by separation has begun here. We also see a very important part of God's plan at the end of verse 8. He says, I will be their God. So a large part of the Old Testament is simply God proving himself. In other words, and who he is. God proving himself. I believe one of the main reasons God established the people as his own was to give himself the opportunity to prove himself both to them and to those around him. And improving himself, he also promoted himself. Not in a prideful way, as we think of somebody promoting themselves today, but in a powerful way, as he proved to them that he is the one and only true God. So while God in the New Testament desires a, a, to um, relate with his people, in the Old Testament, God was establishing an awe and a respect for who he was. We see this continued through the children of Israel, God's chosen people, God engineered a rather complex chain of events that caused the sons of Jacob, who would become the 12 tribes of Israel, to settle in Egypt, where they eventually became slaves, but they also multiplied quickly in a separated and relatively safe setting to become a large and powerful nation. The book of Exodus then opens with God's people in bondage to the Egyptians. Um, God appears to Moses and asks Moses to be the one to lead his people on the next phase of their journey. And that account is in Exodus chapter 3. And I do want to read the entire chapter, just simply because there's a lot in there. Exodus chapter 3. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law... The priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, "I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn." So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, "Moses, Moses." And he said, "Here am I." Then he said, "Do not draw near this place. Take off, take your sandals off your feet." For the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the land, hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression from which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you, That I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, This shall you say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst, midst. and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be... When you go, that, you're, that you shall not go empty-handed, that, but that every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely, of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, gold, and clothing, and that you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. So, As we see this passage, we see God, God's purpose here has three parts. Uh, number one is the next phase. He's taking his people out of Egypt here, uh, they are now strong enough, large enough, to become a nation in and of themselves. It went from, I don't know, you know a couple dozen people um, when Joseph's brothers moved there, and now they are probably millions. And he is moving them on out of that situation. Second thing is, he is proving to them that he is God. Uh, Moses is a little concerned about this. Moses asked God, you know, how, do you, how will they know who you are? Um, How will they know that that God is the one sending Moses? And then thirdly, um, God wants to prove himself to the Egyptians and also to all those that the children of Israel would encounter on their journey to the promised land, proving himself again that there is only one God and that he is all-powerful. I've kind of found what God says in verse 14 very interesting. When Moses asks God what his name is, God responds with a strange answer. He says, I am who I am. Now, for English students, um, I am is a present tense. It's not past, it's not future, um, it's present. Another P word there. Uh, God is eternal. Eternity has no past or future. It is simply always now. In eternity, time does not exist. And so, um, eternity is simply an eternal present, if you please. And then God switches back to man's language and attempt to kind of explain. He says his name is forever, which is again a measure of time. It is forever. So God is, a, is a stab, attempting to establish himself with his people as someone who always has been and who always will exist. I think that was his his reason for um, calling himself what he did. There is, is he is simply eternal. And that was a very, very important concept for the children of Israel to to learn, to to embrace about who God is. As God leads his people through the wilderness, we also see he gives them protection. He gives them provisions. He parted the water of the Red Sea. And then he drowned the Egyptians and other cases as well of protection. Um, He gave them manna. He gave them quail to eat. He provided for them, made water to come from the rock in the middle of the desert. He did all this to prove his power and position as God to them. He needed to first convince them who he was before they could convince those around him. And it still works that way today as well. If we are not convinced who God is, we will have a difficult time convincing anyone else of who God is. God also gave them many laws to live by. The last part of the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... All have very long, uh, rather detailed and exhaustive lists of instructions on how they were to live, to eat, to drink, to worship. Every aspect of their lives were covered (coughs) in those lists. And right in the middle of that, of all of that, God gives a reason why He requires all this differentness from the nations around them. And I think this is the key to His Old Testament call to separation. Um, If you want to, turn to Leviticus 11. uh, Starting at verse 41, and listen for not only God's reason, but also the context in which He gives this reason. Verse 41, Every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination. It shall not be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth these you should not eat they're an abomination you shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them lest you be defiled by them for i am the lord your god you shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for i am holy neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth for i am the lord who brings you out of the land of egypt to be your God. You shall be therefore holy, for I am holy. So right in the middle of all these laws, um, God says the reason you do this is to be holy because God is holy, and then he goes on with more laws then. So God is asking his people to be holy because their God is holy. Uh, God can be a little difficult for the average person to see, to understand, and so the most obvious way for God to be seen is through his chosen people. That, I think, was one of the main reasons why he chose the Israelites, why he separated from their neighbors, separated them from their neighbors by all these laws. God was asking the Israelites to do this stuff, not just to be different, but to, by their lives, point others to God. And so that others could see that God is holy simply by observing his people. If they were no different, then their God must not be much different either. And if if they're different did not point others to God, then it did no good. I think that is still true today. Sometimes it seems that those around them were more convinced of their God than they were sometimes. Uh, Joshua 2, verses 8 through 11. Here we have the situation. The two spies are in Jericho. Um, They are hiding, and Rahab is telling them why she is hiding them. Joshua two verse eight, now before they lay down, she came, she Rahab came up to them on the roof and said to them, "I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, who you utterly destroyed, and as soon as we heard these things, our heart melted neither Did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you? For the Lord your God, he is God, in heaven above and on earth beneath. So Rahab recognized the difference in their God. In fact, she saw their God as the difference between them and the other nations around them. And that difference drew her to God. She became one of the not-so-many outsiders who became part of God's chosen lineage. Um, even the lineage of Jesus, of Christ, coming. So separation in the Old Testament was for a reason, and that reason was primarily God's method of distinguishing Himself through His people from the many false gods that were around them. And separation continues to be a means of doing that, although as we see from the Pharisees, from the teaching that, were, that they were giving in the book of Matthew, Separation can too easily become simply an end in itself. Uh, Being separate only for the reason of being different is not why God called His people to be separate in the Old Testament. He separated them so that they could, in turn, reflect Him. As the New Testament era dawned, uh, Jesus' ministry introduced the idea that being salt and light, as He says, and not just being separate was God's progressing plan of making himself known to all people, not just to his chosen earthly nation. While separation has preservation value, the value is largely only to those who are separated. God wants much more from us than that. His plan for the church includes, I believe, more than just separation. And we'll look to continue that sometime in the future. So let's stand for prayer and then remain standing for the final song. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that you have given us. Thank you for all that it teaches us. Thank you for your plan of salvation, the invitation to accept it, that you have extended to each of us, not just to us, but to all people. We ask that in the aim of preservation, we would not just separate ourselves, but be salt and light that you would have us to be in our communities and those we come in contact with. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.